Hey, where are you at, Eugene? I am in the studios of... I am at Six Sound Studios in ah. downtown LA in the Arts District. You but are in... But there's no one else here. You are in a Mike Sherman joint. Yeah. If people don't know who Mike Sherman is, he is a, a friend of Macon's. He's a... Formerly, he was doing a brand called NCNY, and now he does a slightly controversial brand called Chinatown Market. That's cool. The controversy I won't, I won't go into in this uh, introduction, but... All right. Today, we are going to talk about how the on-demand entertainment world is well-defined, but not so much the education world, the purpose award shows play in the creative process, and whether we need to rethink that and how a freelance photographer sheds light on the importance of getting stories told over getting paid. To dive right into our first topic, we're talking about how the on-demand entertainment world is well-defined, as highlighted by um, an author at TechCrunch. You know, there's a lot of things such as HBO, Netflix, Spotify, that give us music and movies and TV shows when we want it, where we want it, but that same model hasn't really been applied to education or to learning on an individual level. So is there a future for personal and business-minded options in the knowledge economy? First off, I want to start with this question. How do you currently pursue uh, further learning? And I, and I break further learning down into two things, like hard skills, like, oh, how do I... Um, perform this, this skill set in Photoshop, and another one being more of a soft skill, like, oh, how do I manage people? How do, things that don't necessarily have a very concrete answer. So how do you, how do you approach learning, Sharice? So for me, when I technically have a skill or some kind of process that I need to figure out, I usually just Google it. So if the problem is like, how do I adjust font sizes in InDesign across all headings? For example, okay, something like really specific, I will just Google that exact sentence and then I'll wind up on like some FAQ page or a help forum or a YouTube video. And I just go through the search results until one of them gives me what I want. Okay, so that's, that's for like hardware skills, I think that you're describing. Um, Which I generally do the same thing as well. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, I use Adobe Creative Suite mainly, but you also use a set of software that um, you've just picked up, like Ableton, right? Yep, um, yep, yep. And then what you're talking about for softer skills, I read. Like, I'll identify, let's say I wanted to learn about, um, I'm a freelancer, so I want to learn about how to price my work according, like, properly to uh, adjust it to my value. And so I've read a book on that. Oh, you wrote a book. So you didn't actually Google that as well? No, I didn't. Interesting. So I, I think that there's definitely something to be said about what I just mentioned because I think a lot of what this thing, what um, the article kind of alluded to was for people that are looking to continue um, their education, and maybe this is something that your, your employer or whoever is looking to, um, I guess, bring employees up to speed in an economical manner. What I find interesting is how we pursue this is very disjointed. And I think they bring up a great point is that like, 
there are sort of platforms that exist currently that are all over the place. Like, you know, there's there's Khan Academy, there is stuff like Linda. Yep. Um, there's Google, right? And so what I think is interesting is that what you've mentioned is you go to different places for different learnings. Um, have you ever heard of stuff like Linda or Khan Academy that are kind of these these poster childs of online continued education? Actually, regarding Linda, so Linda is a thing that is mainly pitched to people like me who are uh, young designers um, as being a really useful tool. And when I was in university, we had free Linda subscriptions, like as in, because I went to an art school and they thought Linda would be helpful. So we all had like unlimited access, except I never used it. Why is that? So maybe that was like young Sharice being dumb and like not, you know, taking full advantage of resources available to me. But I also think that it was partially because I still needed like a little bit more guidance. Like now, actually, Linda would be more useful to me than when I was a uni student. Because as a uni student, you give someone like this huge database, it's still like, like throwing them into a library and not telling them where books are located. Got it. So you kind of need to find a, you need to find the solution to your problem on your own. You would actually, it, it still required like self-initiated learning. Even with access to a database, you would have to be motivated enough to go and find the things that you wanted to learn more about. I'm curious to know how, who you think the audience is for a like new knowledge base. There are two places that come to mind. The first one entails small businesses. Yeah. You know, people that maybe don't have enough financial backing to be like, hey, Sharice, let me send you to um, this MBA program. Right. Right. But I think you still need to derive some of those skills. Maybe you don't even need the full gamut of MBA learnings, albeit I've never done it. So I don't know if you can actually break it down into sections, but I only want one, seven, and nine in regards to topics. Right. The other one would be just, People like yourself and I who are just fascinated with being better at something we're passionate about. Yeah. And one thing right now, I think there's this, there's this place in time that is not fulfilled in the middle. And it's like, how do I become accredited in something with structure, with all the necessary capabilities of being someone that could professionally pursue this skill, right? Because right now, if you go to Linda, like, I don't know if you having um, been. I don't know if you go to Linda and complete a task. If you can put a lot of weight in that in regards to you pursuing a job, like would you ever feel comfortable putting um, completing a section of Linda on your CV, for example? Actually, what is relevant to this question for me is Code Academy. Have you used that yes. before? I've used. I think, I'm pretty sure I've used it. I mean, I've used something that that is sort of along the same lines that allows you to just pick up different um, coding skills. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Code Academy takes you step by step through basic coding skills, like from ground zero. So anyone can learn to code. It's super easy. I did complete like a full course in that, and I don't really retain it. But if I had like continued advancing through it, I would then. I wouldn't say like accredited by Code Academy, but I would add PHP or JavaScript to my CV. But what if there was a platform that was accredited that, you know, as someone mentioned in the art, as is mentioned in the article, it's the Netflix of continued education that has 
a sense of validity behind it. It's like, hey, you know what? You went here and this is, and you passed, and this is not some BS. This is legitimate. That I think is what is missing. And I, I, I believe that they're, from my understanding of talking to people that are looking to kind of redefine the educational model in our current digital age, that is kind of something I feel, if you could crack that nut, that would essentially change the game. I have a, another question. So assuming you're right, if someone makes this, then it would be industry changing. How are you going to bring people to it? Like, how would you draw that audience that you identified, like the small businesses and individuals like you and me? Doesn't the fact that it's accredited already make it a point of differentiation, though? So like accredited because, by who? Well, I mean, that's TBD. But I mean, if you could, let's say you you brought together, and this is, sounds like a massive undertaking as I talk it out, but... Imagine you had leading schools that were creating programs online that allowed you to, hey, you know what, every, every section, okay, F&B is, is going to be handled by like, uh, food and beverage management, handled by, by this school, right? I see what I you guess mean. What, I guess what, what the difference I see, because as I, I already see a problem as I talk this out. It's like, well, why wouldn't you just take online courses through that university? I guess what I'm looking for is a sense of competency that doesn't require someone to spend, you know, three, four years to achieve it. Because I believe that right now we're at a point in time where there has to be this sort of middle ground that's covered. And I, that's kind of what I said in the beginning. It's like, what's this middle ground that allows me to complete um, something right. that's part of my daily workflow to a high level or a high enough level and that I can take this and I can prove that I'm capable of doing it. I wonder if anyone so, is doing this right now. Maybe they are. I, maybe there's a low-key like Silicon Valley tech startup trying to break into this right now. Maybe. And then maybe someone, if someone's familiar with it, I would love to hear about it. Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a good that's open call. Thing. If anyone listening to this knows that someone is breaking into new ways of learning, let us know. I have sort of this, this philosophical question. That I want to ask you. Sure. If you could be implanted with knowledge without going through the process, would you uh, take it? Would you Would you be down with that? Or do you Or do you find value in the learning process, despite how frustrating it may be? Because I've think I'm thinking about this, and I I generally love the process. But if you could just give me the knowledge without spending the time or the kind of the rigor of going through it, I think I would take it. This is very uncharacteristic of me. I would really appreciate being implanted with, how should I define these? There are some things that I, that I really struggle to grasp, okay? Um, and one of them is accounting, okay? So <laughs> since becoming essentially a small business owner, I've had to learn a lot about accounting and it's been really hard. I don't think I would lose out on any kind of process if you just gave it to me, like if you just put it in my brain. So there are some skills where I'd be like, yes, just give me that thing. And then there are some like what you mentioned before, like learning to be a manager, where I imagine the process is important. Like the process is the valuable essence of learning how to be a good manager.
This topic was inspired by an op-ed that was on one of my favorite sites, It's Nice That, a British site that focuses on creative culture. And every year, the, the Cannes Lions uh, is kind of the centerpiece for advertising professionals and marketing. Um, the op-ed was by Yes and Pepper's Andy Bolter, and he offers his opinions on the current Cannes Festival and what it represents. For those unfamiliar, every year the Cannes Lions is sort of the centerpiece for advertising professionals and marketers. It was previously known as the International Advertising Festival. In recent times, though, it's come under attack for, maybe not under attack, but it's come under fire for being something primarily for the advertising elite, meaning the world's largest agencies that build the most, that are the most valuable. Um, so according to Advertising Age, according to Advertising Age, they were quoted as saying there is costs upwards of $20 million for flights, accommodations, and entertainment. And this was in regards to publicis. So Advertising Age was quoted that it costs upwards of $20 million US dollars for flights, accommodations, and entertainment for a larger agency like publicis who sort of kicked off this big stink because they announced that in 2018 they're going to pull out of the cans and instead focus on a new AI platform, a new uh, AI project they're working on. If you look back at uh, the op-ed by Andy Bolter, it's not necessarily that the monetization of the festival, which you know has just really become sort of this big meeting point, and with that, when you have industry events, they generally become very expensive. It wasn't about the fact that you're making money. No, it's, it was more about the fact that this, these lavish displays really sort of represent only a slice of the marketing and advertising world. So it's really uh, for the upper echelon, and it, and it sort of calls into question, does it actually serve as the award show for creative culture or for advertising? So maybe you can start off by providing some insight into your own thoughts, Cherise. First of all, I just wanted to add a little bit more information to this uh, news item. Publicis, in case you didn't know, is actually the parent company for Leo Burnett, Saatchi and & Saatchi, and BBH. So Publicis as a name is maybe less well-known than the three that I just mentioned, and the fact that Publicis is pulling out of the awards means all of those branches, like globally, are not going to be entered in the awards either. So one of the, I guess, um, repercussions, one of the effects of them pulling out is that their employees could possibly be disgruntled, like displeased with the fact that the work that they're doing right now that will be launched in the next year are not going to be awarded so that led me to think about, like, who are these awards important to? Like, who gets the most value from work being recognized at cons? Can I jump in real quick yeah, before go for you it. say anything else? Because I thought you brought up something really interesting. It was like, oh, you might have disgruntled employees because they're not being entered. Yes. First off, I think I think that if you're entering this field to win awards, that's that's definitely the wrong way of looking at it. You might want to... I mean, like, yes, I I agree with you, but I also, I also know a lot of people in ad agencies don't see things that way. I really believe that if you're out there creating work 
for the sake of winning an award, you need to check your priorities. It's like, what, what is the purpose? Because I think that that really changes the dynamic of why you do things. But, are you doing things to create awards? Or are you doing it to solve a problem? But what if I told you that like, the, it's not that they create their work with the intention of winning an award, but that the award is important to them for their personal careers. Like, if they were the art director on a, like a cons, like a gold lion, then they could become, you know, that they would get um, equivalent promotions or salary raises or opportunities at other agencies. I agree with you. I hope that they're not in it for the award, but I think right now in that ad industry, there is still a culture of awards of that lion being equivalent to personal value and therefore being equivalent to what you get. Which I would jump in and very quickly say, which is that's exactly why agencies are in so much trouble because the misalignment of their, their goals and what they're trying to do immediately. You're like, what, what are you even doing? Like, what is the purpose of your job? Because on top of that, I can tell you right now, and this is sort of like an aside, but a relevant aside is that, Macon is in many ways a publication, but it also does agency work. And the agency work it does is not something we pursued, but people came to us. And I find it very fascinating that us not even promoting ourselves, not even seeking business as an agency is able to come in and win business. And it's not even from small startups. It's actually from big multinational companies that are interested in working with us. And I'm thinking to myself, we're not even an agency in in the public's eye, making is not an agency. Yeah, people are coming to us. Yeah. So what does that say about the overall agency landscape? And I think that you you have so much fat at the top that you're immediately setting yourself up for disaster when the goal is no longer about doing great work. It's about doing work that fulfills an intent that that I think is is not. I mean, how do I say this properly? What crosses my mind is that you're you're pursuing work or you're creating work that fulfills a purpose beyond what advertising is for. Advertising isn't necessarily created to win an award. Although I guess that's kind of the direction things are going, right? I mean, you've, we've seen it. You, you know people that personally are out there to win awards and accolades, right? Okay. Um, I, I want to I make a disclaimer before we continue and say that all of the work that wins Lions is really good. Like I checked. I went through like 2017 awards and the work deserves it, like deserves recognition is what I'm saying. Not like I, I'm giving value to a lion and saying like they deserve a lion, but like they deserve wider recognition in my opinion. And I do think that the work that is selected is still worthy of being looked at as um, aspirational. Like as for me as a designer, like looking at it can cause me to have new ideas, right? Like that's good. That's a good thing. Um, so I just want to say that first, and then to remark on what you were saying about the demise of agencies or like how that industry is struggling. I agree. I think what is happening with Keynes and Publicis pulling out is just another symptom of this industry's problems. Um, and what you might find interesting is that Keynes has actually switched from being heavily agency focused, like mostly entries from agencies to being more entries from clients. 
And what that means is that a lot of the big clients, like McDonald's, for example, are moving to in-house teams or like trying to build bigger and stronger in-house teams because they are they. Whether they've identified this as the exact reason, they are losing faith in the agencies they've been using. Who, which agency is the one that handled the Pepsi Jenner um, ad? Oh no, it, that was and internal. That. that was their own team. Exactly, exactly. So oh, I you just set me like up. Kinda, I just set you up. Ah. I think it's like. <laughs> I think that's kind of fascinating because at the end of the day, it's like you're creating all this extravagant work. Which to me personally, like, I don't know if I really care about high quality advertising in in the sense that what I'm seeing. But okay, so do you know who won? I don't know what to call. I forget what the term is for like the grandest prize at the Lions, but they won like four of the top awards. But what, what, any which, guesses? Which video was it? Hmm? No, I, I have no. It's idea. Fearless Girl. Does that ring any bells? Fearless girl is that like bronze statue of the little girl in Wall Street, where she's standing okay. defiantly in front of the charging bull. Got it. So I don't even know if you were aware that that was an ad campaign, but there. Well, now I know. There was a little bit of controversy when it was um, when it was placed there because people were like, "Ah, oh, like uh, it was almost like guerrilla art," but it's not. It's it looks like guerrilla art. But it's an ad campaign. And that was done by McCann, I think. I am right. It is McCann. It's not State Street Global Advisors. McCann is the agency State. that worked for okay. them. So, sorry, because we're because I we're focusing on the agency and not the client right now. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Um, and they're the big winner, and I think they deserve it. But does it does it? Yeah, but that, that I don't know. Though. It's funny because I just said I just said that the in, the ad a- agency industry is declining and people are moving to in house teams. And then you were like, Pepsi was done by an in house team, and Fearless Girl was done by an agency. So I don't know what that says. Well, I mean, perspective is the most important thing. But th- the thing is, I remember this and. I remember what it stood for, but I think this is pretty atypical, right? When I think of cons, I think of more along the lines of of commercials and all that stuff. I don't think that the fact this thing won awards changes the fact of whether it's good or not, because I think it had an intended consequence or it had an intended outcome that I think generally worked, right? People were talking about it. Right. I'm, I wasn't familiar with what it was by name, but I'm familiar with the image. Yeah. So it really makes me think that there's so much excess that we're at a point in time right now where all these legacy industries, I think advertising is one, uh, newspapers is another one, that had such massive profits in the past and now they're just being disrupted, right? I think advertising is also changing in the sense that I don't need an agency anymore. I go straight to the creative. I go to my Instagram influencer. Right. Right. I go to the small, I go to the small nimble agency. I go to Macon Studio. Right, which makes me think this is increasingly more irrelevant. I never, for a second, want to create something because I'm going to try to win an award for it. I agree with you that I try very hard to not think of what public accolades I might get for my work. But I have been there where I thought it would be really nice to be part of an agency team that wins a lion, and 
I think that is a human instinct to want that. And Kane's is still nice as a big congratulatory party for the industry. That, that's my answer to the question you asked at the beginning. Okay, I think what Keynes is, is a big, and it's also what Andy Boulder said, right? It's a big pat on the back. Like, it's all the people who work together get to have this party, lots of champagne, and say, like, good job, guys. Like, and waste a lot of money. Okay, fine, yes. Well, I mean, okay, sure, waste a lot of money. But I don't think that we can argue the festival is incentivizing creativity. That, that's where I land on this. But there are, there are people that are creating work to win awards. Yes, there are people out there who are making work to win awards, but that's such a personal thing. Like, we can't know every campaign that comes out. You're not going to be like, hey, art director, did you do this to win an award? Like, or did you do this because you were inspired? Like, I don't even know how to get the hard data on that. So even before a publicist pulled out, I remember reading an article back in 2016 from DDB. I make it sound like I'm actually referring to this by memory, but I made sure to pull it up. So I should probably preface that. I'm looking at it right now. So basically what the chief creative officer was saying was the goal should be to create great, unseen, fresh, and innovative work that will move people, that will impact society and shape culture. And that's the only real and relevant recognition that an industry should aim for. So that to me is like, I think the best way of looking at advertising. I'm not overtly opposed to advertising, but I, I know that it should serve a broader function first and foremost. And that if you win an award, great, but it should never be even in your mainstream consciousness. It, winning an award should never be anywhere in your sights. It's like, if it happens, dope. But if not, who cares? You know, I don't, I don't create work in hopes of getting a pat on the back. I create work because I hope that it'll have some sort of impact, as you said, right? Like, I think you're, you're, you're focusing on the wrong things. And that, to me, becomes my bone to pick with everything. It's like you're misusing resources, time, effort, because you're thinking in the back of your mind, oh, you know what? This award will look good on my, on my desk. To add a depressing note to this great article from DDB is that at the Keynes um, keynote this year, they had this research, like an analysis company, like a consulting analysis company, stand up and reveal this new research that demonstrates the link between companies who have had success at Keynes and superior financial performance. So basically, Keynes itself recognizes that DDB, publicists, agencies are having this like kickback to awards, and they are trying to show stats that prove they're still relevant, that an award equals creativity, and that an award equals financial success. I think maybe financial success. I don't know if it necessarily means creativity. Oh, I didn't. I mean, I mean, I think I think creativity comes first, and what is optimistic, what I'm optimistic about is that ad agencies are falling more in the same boat as DDB and Plubusis, and they know that by doing work that you said, that he said was great, unseen, fresh, and innovative, money and accolades will come. But the primary incentive is to do work that, that, that fits those qualifications first. 
Does that make sense? Like, it's the idea of when you focus on the money and the recognition, you actually won't produce work that gets it. You have to be trying to make work that changes things. And then if you are successful, you'll get the other good stuff too. So if I understand correctly, these companies that are pulling out have directly benefited from their success at award shows. Yes. Oh, well, Keynes argues that they have financial, that they have stats that argues that, that the awards lead to greater financial success. But then again, is there great work that is being created but cannot participate True. in these award shows? Yeah. Which I think is the more critical thing. Like, would I ever go to an award show? Honestly, I think I've, I've put it out there that I'm so anti-award show that it would be contradictory if I did show up. So maybe I'll just make that decision for myself right now. But beyond that, I think the financial implications that, in, that are required for me to attend, already like that's a turnoff for me, right? Like I don't know if making that money, I don't know if uh, attending an award show would be the use of money that I would be interested in. But to that point too, like I'd be very interested to know like, some of the some of the bigger companies that are out there that sort of dominate the space like for example vice as we know is really big in the advertising world right yeah. for for their efforts i would be interested to know how vice does amongst these more established sort of traditional players i i do think you bring up a point that we didn't really talk about or we didn't elaborate on which is that I'm sure there are many small boutique agencies who do great work that will never, that it just doesn't make sense for them financially to enter awards. Like award, awards don't validate whether something's good or not. But I guess if you have it in front of a high level jury who've seen a lot that are respected and have a way of critically analyzing something, then I guess there is. There is validity in that. I don't doubt that. Well, I also think that it's a it's an easy shortcut for clients to take as well when they're picking an agency. Or like an easy shortcut for people who aren't more aware of what agencies do to just look at that. It's like how if you're not really into movies or you don't spend a lot of time keeping up to date, then if someone tells you like, oh, when the Oscar best picture, that's like, Quick way to say, it's worth your time. Award shows serve a purpose, but have they just become so bloated and misaligned and the, the focus now is less about the act and more about the business? And that, I guess, is where my bone is to pick. So our last item of news that we're going to talk about is this article that came out in Petapixel early in July, um, written by a photographer, Kainoa Little, who said he spent April and May of this year in Iraq documenting fighting, documenting the conflict there. And when he came home and tried to 
find a buyer for his photos, no one, there were no takers. So he decided to release them for free. Little makes this argument that strikes me as manipulative. Um, and I want to see if you think it, if you see it the same way. He argues that the soldiers and the refugees expected him to tell their stories. I don't believe that is directly stated as such, but anytime you let someone into your life and you know it's media related, you expect that to be placed somewhere. And that by virtue allows your story to be told. Oh, I don't even know if I agree with that. Interesting. I would like to hear points about that. I mean, I guess I can't know for certain. Like, I can't know what Little said to the families or the fighters to allow him to photograph them and to talk to them. So maybe that is what he said. Maybe he said, oh, this is going to get, like, big media coverage. And that's why they let him photograph. Okay, like, fine. I'll accept that. But I also wonder if it was just a case of, like, they're nice. And he's, like, a cool, like, a friendly guy and so it was like no it was like irrelevant to them whether they let him tag along or not I guess I don't know if I'm romanticizing this or not but I just feel like their lives are so bleak that they're not genuinely thinking oh these photos are gonna get out in western media and then they're gonna like save our lives like I just think the the concept of people in conflict thinking that western media might come and change their situation is a perception that we've put on them rather than being genuinely coming from these people. What I think you say is, is definitely interesting because, I mean, we're taking a little bit of liberty here to kind of think what other people are saying. Right. I still believe that if there's, there's a, perhaps an unsaid assumption that documentation is never for your own usage. Like it's going to, especially in a war-torn country, there's an expectation this will go somewhere else, right? I I don't don't know if you're right. I mean, we can hypothesize, but... You're right. I mean, without Uh, We're both hypothesizing, which is fine. I I mean, well, which is fine in the sense that we, you're in LA and I'm in Hong Kong and we can't, neither of us is flying to Iraq anytime soon. Do do you believe someone would put themselves on the line to have a body of work to be kept to, to themselves? Okay. Yeah, I think we can focus on the photographer. Um, I have skepticism about his position. Just by reading his, reading the article on Petapixel and then looking through the photos and, and going through his portfolio site as well. And even his Facebook and his Instagram. So like as much as... Damn, you went deep. I went deep. I... Because I have a not-so-good opinion of this guy, so I just wanted to be, like, as clear as possible. So I don't know him personally. I can only go off of what he is projecting. So what I'm saying is, like, the public image he has crafted for himself, okay? Which I think is fair. Like, if you're going to put yourself out there in a certain light, then, like, that's what I'm going to go off of. So I think he's a little bit of a war tourist, and I think... I would never categorize him as a conflict photographer, which is what he calls himself on Petapixel. I I personally look at his photos and see them as a stereotype of what you might expect of photos from this region. Like there's almost this 
terrorism aesthetic or like a war aesthetic. It doesn't. Ju- it just doesn't strike me as um, genuinely storytelling. Like he says, he wants these voices to be heard, but I don't. I don't see a real story about real people in his work. And was this before, or after the comment section? Uh, this is after the comments. Well, okay. Why don't you talk about the comment section? Like, can you, can you just describe what was in the comments for us? So what's interesting too about this is that if you look at the comments within the post, it really went into this guy. Like you had a few positive ones like, oh yeah, this is really admirable of you. Some of the commenters had personal attacks like, oh, the photography is not that good. You know, you're kind of exploiting this. Um, but overall, like I thought that was really interesting in that people felt as though his work wasn't good enough, which is why it had no buyers or it had no place, right? Which pushed him, you know, to do it to have to release it for free. You know, I think that it just became like a marketing stunt for him. Or, I mean, he's probably gotten a lot more um, visibility from this than had it been put, actually picked up by a newspaper, right? Yeah. But I, I, I was. When I thought about it, I was like, I can honestly say when I first read it, I was like, oh, this is kind of admirable. This is kind of cool. Like, yeah. I didn't really think deeper and, and start to wonder why didn't he get picked up. Right. So when, when they started breaking down, I found it really fascinating. It's like, hey, maybe this guy was actually going to Iraq, putting himself in danger with what was already a very small marginal chance of being picked up. And then now he's trying to play like, oh, you know what? Spin in a way that I didn't. I didn't have the opportunity to place these in a big newspaper or a magazine or whatever. So you guys have them for free. So I think the commenters were quite insightful. Some of them were like making inflammatory comments, but some of them were giving very you know considered arguments. And one of them that I appreciated was the fact that he didn't like try to link up with journalists. We have no evidence of him trying to link up with a media. Uh, publication or a, a TV network or anyone beforehand to make sure that like this story would get told properly using his photos. Yeah, and I think that's a key thing too because yeah, like there are no words, there's no context. You love that? There's no context. There's no framework for these. Another thing about so I had the same reaction as you because you shared this in the briefing and I didn't think more about it. Like I honestly I. I looked at the title, I read about it, I was like, yeah, whatever, like, cool. And since we have to talk about this for the podcast, I was looking at Petapixel. And maybe this is a conspiracy theory, like maybe because we're, we always seem to be like, big media sucks. Is it possible that Petapixel asked him to make it more clickbaity? No, I don't think so. Can you can you elaborate on what you mean by okay, that? Okay, I don't mean like asked him. Like he submitted a thing and they were like, this is not clickbaity enough. Let's make it clickbaity, right? Like that's not the conversation that happened. But what if he submitted, he was like, oh, I have these conflict photos. Like, I want people to look at them. Can I give them for free? Like on Petapixel. And then Petapixel was like, yeah, let's frame this as no one would buy these photos. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> Do you not like it? Don't. You, you don't like it as in... Do you not like where this is going because you think I'm wrong or because it makes you uncomfortable or you want to stop me from making a bigger fool of myself because it's okay, like, I'll take it. The reason why I don't like where it's going is because I think that you're, you're taking a lot of liberties to craft arguments. Okay. 
That's what I don't like about it. And at the end of the day, like if, if that was truly the case, I think Petapixel could have crafted a narrative that gave them more credibility if they were able to understand and provide maybe their opinion why the photos didn't get picked up. They can still they can still tell the story. Hey, this guy took these photos. No one picked them up. Here you go. Enjoy them. Okay. I, no, I take it. I I definitely take your point that I am crafting narratives from very little and that that's dangerous and I should resist the urge to do that. But I still think that the title of this article is a little bit irresponsible. Can you explain your your thoughts? I think that it's trying to get clicks, you know, in that sort of listicle way. How would you craft it otherwise? Just be like photos from Mosul 2017? I think that there was an editorial choice made here to frame it in that context of no media outlets would buy my photos, right? Instead of just being, you know, conflict photography from Iraq, just don't totally stand with that decision. Got it. So I understand now. Like now, now, that, now that you've explained a bit more based on the title, because I wasn't really thinking that much about the title. I admit that I totally... I exaggerated what could have happened with the Petapixel board, and I take it back. I don't want to start a war between me and them, right? So I'll just stick with this title being a certain choice of framing that I would not have picked. If if someone's going to invite you into their lives, shelter you, feed you, or just like basically provide you access, what do you owe them? Do you owe them um, a story that should be seen, period? Not to say like, hey, you know what? You, you can't guarantee that, hey, if I get commissioned, that this story won't get cut. But do we have a duty to repay them in some way? Do you think that we need to find a home for it? Even if it's our own home, a home, period, for it to be seen. Do you owe it to the person that's providing you access? I think that if you are a photographer or a journalist and you go into some sort of conflicted area where people have stories that are not being told widely and you ask them for access and they give you access, then you have a responsibility as a human. Okay. I say human because I I don't think there's like a contract. It's not a legally binding contract, but you've entered into an agreement as a person to try and share their stories in whatever way you can as genuinely and honestly as possible. And I guess then it's up to the photographer or the journalist to decide in what way when they return home is the most honest and true to the people that they were granted access to. So perhaps there are some people who pick ways that you and I might disagree with that being the most honest and true way, but it was a way that they thought was going to get the story out. Okay, I think that's what happened here. No big media outlets will take a story you can still publish a story as honestly as you see it, you know, on Medium, on Facebook, on Instagram, on platforms that are under your own control. And I know that it's not the, I know that it's not the widespread access of like a CNN, but that, that's still a way of telling a story. When someone lets you into your life, you know, it's a very private. It's a very private moment. It could be a dangerous moment. It could be a lot of things, but to open up and provide a sense of vulnerability to you, the least you could do 
is find a way for them to have a memory of it, right? For you to like to to hold on to this and to not divulge it to the rest of the world, even though it might you might not have, you might have only have ten followers. I don't care. It's like at least provide an opportunity for it to live somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Right. And that to me, like if I look back, this is kind of what I looked at um, when I first came across this. I didn't look so deep as to think, oh, you know what, like the photos weren't that great. That's why they didn't get picked up. Or there's a lot of other sort of stipulations as to why this didn't run. You know, I, I really took it at face value and I still believe what we both agree upon to trump um, any sort of any sort of nefarious, is that the right word? Nefarious, yeah. any sort of like, whether or not the photographer could have, should have done his homework, I don't really care about that. I mean, you you went into a place that opened up my eyes to something that maybe I wouldn't have seen otherwise. You know, maybe if this was on CNN or this was on the New York Times, I would have just quickly scrolled past it or I would have never even looked at it. But since it's on a, a website focused on photography, which I check regularly, all of a sudden, it's opened my eyes. Uh, can I use this opportunity to plug someone that you should look up, like homework? Yeah. There's a journalist called Rukmini Kalamachi. And I know it's not really fair to Little to like place him next to her because she's like a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. But she's amazing. This woman does really in-depth reporting on ISIS. I think it's worth everyone's time to look into her work. I'm not trying to use this as a comparison. I'm just trying to plug this as an opportunity for us to learn more. I'll definitely check it out and we'll put it in the show notes. I have to say this was incredibly taxing. <laughs> I like, I struggled to get through this. You've said this now like twice. We have to do our outro though. Do you want to do outro and then you want to tell me about it? Uh, no, this was actually, I was going to include oh, this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Why was it taxing for you, Eugene? I don't know. I think it was just difficult to like... I just generally like to have a point of view, but it's as I was talking through it, what I thought was my stance on it slowly sort of almost almost melted away. It's almost as though new things popped in my head that I would be like, hey, if I was hearing Eugene talk, I'd definitely be poking holes in his argument. You think to yourself, oh, maybe I need to address that. And that's kind of my kind of a, a, a difficult place to be in because you're trying to provide a point of view. Yet it's continually shifting. The goalposts themselves are like moving to different places. I think but, what you're feeling is this vulnerability that we're putting ourselves into. Like we're making our, we're exposing ourselves on this podcast, not in an indecent way. I just mean like we're exposing our thoughts as, as they are forming. I'm more than happy if someone was to listen to this and was like, hey, you're, you, you totally overlooked so many points and I want you to be aware of this, this, and this. Or someone who's going to cons every single year yeah. who can provide me insight into why this needs to exist. I guess, I'm, you know what, if I frame it like that, I will 100% continue to just take one path and one path only knowing that it's susceptible to someone that knows more or has a different point of view than me. I think this is a good point to uh, open up the email inboxes. Is that fair? I was going to ask you anyway. If you want to get in touch with either of us, you can email Eugene at Macon.com or Sharice at Macon.com. It's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, head over to Macon.com. 
There you'll experience some of our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. Till next week. I'm Sharice. I'm Eugene. And this is Making It Up. I didn't realize that we were changing the order of that. You want to know more about the Lyft Uber thing? Yeah. Okay, first of all, why are you on an hour-long Uber Lyft ride? Uh, this Lyft ride was an hour because we went from... We went from Palos Verdes to like Echo Park or something. So it was super long. Was there traffic? Um, Not really. It was late at night. It's just that far. Damn. But but it was just interesting because I started talking with the Lyft driver who I alluded to in the making briefing. And a really interesting guy, you know, very talkative. I was actually a little bit worried because whenever I step into the Lyft, or the Uber, I'm always worried, oh man, I hope I don't get a talker because depending on your mood, sometimes you're just tired, right? You want to just zone out. That's how I feel but when I get as, on every Hong Kong cab. But once we started talking, well, in Hong Kong, they don't talk to you, period, so you're fine. No, they don't talk to you, period, because they like realize you're not going to respond. But anyway, continue. So you get into the lift. Yeah, so we started talking and I don't remember how the conversation started exactly, but we just started like talking a little bit more about um, just Lyft in general and, you know, why he's driving Lyft and some of the differences. And it naturally broke into some of the the differences between Lyft and Uber. I mean, this is more about the bigger picture and Uber hasn't always had tipping, but Lyft has had tipping. And I was like, oh, you know, tell me about the, tell me about the tipping function. Like, how does it work? Does it really make a difference? And he's like, yeah, it's like, it's pretty good. And like, some ethnicities tip more than others. And I was like, oh, like, I didn't ask for that information, but he's just like, oh, like, Vietnamese people tend to tip a lot, and so do Armenians. Oh, and the reason why I didn't want to put that, the reason why I didn't want to put that in the making briefing is like, I, there's no way for me to verify that. But it's just like, you know, he felt there's a sense of pride from both of these backgrounds. They're like, hey, Vietnamese people, more so that Vietnamese people respect the hustle of being a driver. While Armenians are very proud. It's almost though Armenians want you to have a good perspective of them. So that's why they're making sure to tip you. It's interesting that he has like in his head this data about ethnicities and tipping. Which is why I didn't feel that comfortable talking about it. Right, which is fair, um, but also makes me so curious like what he thinks about, you know, other ethnicities. But we don't have to get into that. And there was another story told me of there was a, a guy from Kuwait, a Kuwaiti guy, and he was visiting LA and he was looking for cannabis, right? And he kept going to all these dispensaries. He obviously had no card and he was getting rejected at every single one of the dispensaries. Okay. So finally, the driver, Dominic, yeah. was like, yo, man, if you go to the hookah bar that you already frequent, Try hitting those guys up because those guys for sure have cannabis. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. He was the link up. And then he, and then he was like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good point. So then he ended up going and getting dropped off at a hookah bar and the guy tipped him a hundred bucks. So that's kind of like another story. And like, I'm, I didn't want to also put that on the making briefing on the basis that, hey, you know what? Am I incriminating this guy? Is this illegal? I don't know. I mean, I was, I don't know. He sounds kind finally, of amazing to me. Lyft driver slash personal concierge. Oh, uh, but I should have I should have opened up with this this little tidbit. But he did mention that 
in the very beginning, the big differentiation between Uber and Lyft riders was that Uber riders were always very interested to hear what's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you, while Lyft riders were more inclined to just thank them, like thank him, get into the car, and just dive into their phone, and that was that. I also think that's so right? weird because I have never asked a driver that question before. You haven't, but I was at at breakfast today, and I and I mentioned this, and one of the people at the table said, "Oh yeah, I've asked that before." The thing is that he said it got so bad that he eventually started creating skits. Lol. Like he would create, <laughs> which is why I don't know how much of this you could believe from him, right? Albeit, I never really entered that. Like we basically had him open up over the course of an hour, mm-hmm. and it never really felt as though.、Um, He was fabricating stuff because we weren't really there to like elicit it. We were we weren't really there to like pull it out of him. He does sound like a showman.、Right? He is. He definitely, definitely, you could tell、uh, like definitely doing stuff like that.、Um, and then what else? He also was talking about. So I、uh, mind you, this is an hour. So there's a ton of stories. One other story was him saying that it's like every other week he gets proposition to exchange sexual favors for. A free ride, and once again, I have no idea if I can. I have no way of confirming this.、I'm、so just... I was like, "Oh, I don't know, man." <laughs> so you have to understand why. Like, I I might have stopped short in the newsletter. Well, of course. Like, how 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 am I supposed to how am I supposed to put this out there?、Um, so you're saying like, yeah, and it's often like the ones that he probably wouldn't even. I mean, he was joking around, but he's like, "Oh, you know, there's no one, there's no one that's asked me to exchange sexual favors for a free ride." That would make me think twice about my kids and my wife. Well, you know what I mean. I love that he put it that way. 